Home Ireland. I'm here with Johnny Govan, the director and producer of Prisoners of the Moon. Um, and then I'm also here with Nick Snow, and he's the writer. So, um, and the co-producer. And the co-producer. Yeah. So yeah. We are here at a very special screening at the IFI. So while we're sitting out here in the cafe, that's all the nice noise that you're hearing. And um, inside, there's uh, a lot of people sitting there in rapt attention, enjoying the film. So um, again, thank you so much for chatting to us and I uh, just wanted to ask you a little bit um, about your own back story, about your own kind of uh, history in film before we get into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah, well I started my film uh, work as a projectionist at school and then uh, I became the first editor of um, Film Ireland Yay. back in uh, 1987 and uh, worked to kind of get that going. Uh, for film base at, at, at the time and at, at that time I was also making my first short film Stephen which uh, was a really good start for me gave me a good good push interesting time to make films because there was very little there was no film board at that time um, film board had been abolished and there was, but there was great energy around people really trying to get stuff made and I was fortunate to, to make a couple of films in that kind of interregnum if you like period well, I'm the complete opposite to Johnny. This is my first film, uh, a newbie, a film virgin. Uh, I'm a reporter by training and background, now more of a publisher businessman in business to business in television technology. Um, but uh, I came across this story um, through covering commercial rocket launches, and that led me to research into Bernard Brown, etc. Wrote a book in 2009, which was a, a novel based on this kind of a story, and knew about the tribunal and got hold of the transcript, and that's kind of when our story starts. Wow, because it is—it's um—it is a fascinating uh, story. So I don't want—I don't want to do too much spoilers because I, I don't know that the way the film is structured, there's a little bit of ambiguity at the very beginning, and then you guys start to really kind of unpack the story as it goes on. So I don't. I don't want to give too much away because it is very, there's a lot of interesting kind of reveals. Yeah, it kind of ebbs and flows that way. And that's in the nature of the courtroom drug. Because what I set out to do, got hold of this tribunal transcript from Canada, and it was 2,500 pages. So my first job, which I undertook just to see if I could do it, was to render that into a courtroom drama. And, and then I thought, well, one way to use this courtroom drama might be as the kind of a spine of a documentary, a drama documentary, or a reconstructed documentary. I, I wonder if that's a thing that you can do. And uh, I punted it around a little bit. I, I knew about Johnny's connection um, with, with Germany, uh, and we met up at MIPCOM, which is a TV program market, really, in the autumn of 2016, and took it from there. That's right, yeah, and um, very quickly had a script that was brought some elements into it that are alluded to in, in Nick's play, but I was keen to have... It's always difficult if you have a story in which the key character, the key figure, the protagonist, is... It, it's all his or her story, and their story may be kind of quite a dark story, so I was keen to kind of bring an antagonist in, and that kind of presented itself a bit in an illusion in the court, in Nick's play, to a character called Jean-Michel, yeah. who had written uh, a book in the mid-70s, co-authored with a, a French novelist called Louis Nucella. And Jean-Michel was a French resistance fighter 
who had been uh, captured by the Gestapo in 1942 and had been sent to Buchenwald and actually ended up in the factories where Arthur Rudolph was the operations director, was, the, was running the whole operation, these underground factories in Germany, which we can speak about a bit more. But his story um, is in some, like, some in, our, in the structure of our film a counterpoint to the story of Arthur Rudolph. And they have different journeys and... Um, and but it also, Michel is a bit like a kind of a, an unseen. Um, he gives an unseen testimony, an unheard testimony in the story. He's not in the courtroom, but he is part of the judgment of Arthur Rudolph in our in our story. And what's very interesting, you did say in in, uh, in the play and his delivery because he's breaking the fourth wall. The the courtroom scenes are very. Um, yeah, like you know, kind of like, oh, like a, a take on non order, the very courtroom scenes. But his piece is really what made me lean over, and it did feel like a like an actual play. And, and the, the the prose in which he was delivering it as well. Were, yeah. were they based on his own words, or were they you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Johnny wanted right from the outset to do it in a kind of black box format, and and not least because it was held in a very prosaic sort of uh, ordinary conference room in Toronto. So it's something so boring. Why bother to recreate it? So it was much simpler to do it in a sort of black box, which does give it that kind of theatrical feel. But the testimony given uh, from all the characters apart from Jean-Michel is an absolutely faithful rendering from the transcript. It's not verbatim, but it's a completely faithful rendering. Jean-Michel, who obviously wasn't a witness, and we brought him in because um, you know, there clearly are no living witnesses uh, for the prosecution in the sense of slave labourers that had survived that long that they could bring to court. Um, but his testimony and his dialogue is again a faithful rendering of what's in his autobiography. Yeah. So it was his testimony as he remembered it and wrote it down 25, 30 years after the fact, I suppose, in the mid-70s. Wow. And again, it, it, there is that, I like that kind of juxtaposition because the courtroom drama, like, it is very one person speaks, another person speaks, another person speaks. And again, actually, this is the other element of the play where a lot of the action is, is told through dialogue. Then you, you have the, the documentary sections of it, and then that is very kind of fast-paced. And, and it's kind of jarring, but it's a jarring story, so the pacing really suits the narrative, if that makes sense. As a viewer, I definitely felt that. Yeah, well, it's, um, it was a challenge, I suppose, to, to combine the documentary and the dramatization, it's not something you naturally go for. You know, you either do documentary or you do drama. But, you know, uh, there was so much that was new in what Nick had researched. Yeah. This is actually, you know, what Nick found in those 2,000 pages of transcript in Toronto was had never been told before. Other aspects of Operation Paperclip, um, as told through... Eli Rosenbaum, who's the chief war crimes prosecutor in, in the Department of Justice in, in the U.S., or Mike Neufeld from the Smithsonian, they had been in other documentaries, but they never got to tell this story completely either uh, because new information came to light during the trial of Arthur Rudolph, or the tribunal that, that took place. So the two um, strands of storytelling, if you like, come together in that, uh, that, piece, of, that piece of information that was only ever raised within the courtroom, um, but which both Neufeld 
and Rosenbaum were central to, to making happen. You know, so so there is a kind of a, a natural a, a structure in, in plot terms, yeah, um, and stylistically as well that the two forms come together. But I, I, I love as well the way that information is sort of revealed slowly and you're getting like little bits and pieces from people here and there and it's almost like it's almost like, you know, you're kind of someone who's involved in the periphery of the story as you're watching it. And, well, that was exactly the yeah. idea, that it, you know, a procedural courtroom drama obviously has a defence and a prosecution and at times the prosecution seems to be in the ascendancy and at times the defence does. And it's certainly true that... Um, you know, Rudolph had a defence. Yeah. May not have been a great defence, but he had a defence, and certainly the authorities, including those that had investigated him directly, never mind those who brought all these Nazis in, had a case to answer. And I think virtually the only way to get that across would be in the to and fro, the push and push back of a courtroom drama. Plus it is a way, because you've got witness testimony and you've got expert testimony and you've got it being challenged, it's one of the few ways you can get that much exposition across, you know, in that kind of a, a kind of a pace. And if you'd have done that with a narrator and with just talking heads, it would have been a colossal amount of just, well, this guy says this and then this guy says this. So, um, you know, we had no doubt from the start that that should form the spine of the way that the story was told. I, I mean, as this is a filmmaking magazine, we can go into it a bit more. I mean, in, in the sense that, I mean, the, the, the challenge also is. Drama is about emotion and is about character and obviously about plot, you know, so we're working a little bit against the grain and trying to, as Nick says, get the information over that the characters are, are saying, because actually what you're thinking of is the, the tete-a-tetes that are happening and it's difficult to take in all the information in the context of that, whereas documentary is more associated with the communication of information, you know. So that's, you know, that is a challenge. A challenge for us, but it's a challenge for the audience as well. Definitely. And what's very interesting, again, it's all those snippets of information that we get and it paints a specific picture of him and it's flipped a little bit when we hear a little bit more and it's flipped a little bit. Can we trust who we're hearing the information from? And I don't know if it's planned, but it does seem very... um, kind of true now more than ever where we're giving, being given little bits of, of conversation and we're giving little bits of information and you know certain people don't believe certain bits of information and that they're not being heard and you know you, you, you almost feel like are, are two people living on the same planet where they're hearing the same things and again he seems like someone who was maybe quite charismatic like he seemed to have won over everybody that he worked with and was really good friends with people that he worked with the fact that they were going to they were willing to sit up in court without really fully hearing the facts and take everything he said at complete face value which was very interesting and is very sort of timely in this time of like facts being twisted and things or was that something that you guys had planned because it really sits into I mean I think it is very fascism was so yeah. manipulative with um, economical with the truth and um, we, live, we, we live in an era now where fascism, neo-fascism, populism is rife. And, uh, but maybe when, when Nick was writing the piece, maybe that's what was in the back of your mind. Well, there's certainly echoes of fake news and yeah. believing what you want to believe. 
and willful blindness. Yeah, I mean, believing uh, what's convenient, and you get the sense like that, especially the army general guy, yeah. where you're like, I love. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as somebody says, uh, as as the, as the prosecuting counsel says, yeah. um, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend, and all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And that those two counters were what the whole kind of story was about. I mean, yeah. by the time the, the war ended. America had already decided that the Soviets were the new enemy. And anybody that could help them fight the Soviets was good news. And the Nazis would justify their position as members of the Nazi party, largely through their hate of communism. So this was all good news to the ears of McCarthyite America in the early 1950s. And it's, it's, it's a very interesting aspect of this story that the Germans, within a few years of them arriving in the USA, were moved to Huntsville, Alabama, which became the center of missile development and later of rocket development for, for NASA. And of course, this, this was in the Deep South, this was in the Deep South of segregation, and the Germans seemed to have fitted right in and made a significant and very well appreciated contribution to the culture there. And if you go to Huntsville today, which Johnny and I did, and uh, you know, take a look around and talk to people, these guys are still heroes. Streets are named after them, convention centers, sports fields are named after them. And to this day, they won't hear a word against them. Partly because, uh, I mean, before they went there, Huntsville was the watercrest city of America. Now it's the rocket city of America. Um, I was coming at us after doing the film on Hubert Butler, who was the great truth teller and had written about the Second World War and about fascism and about how the, co- the cover-ups that had happened. Um, in, in that case, in, in the independent state of Croatia, it was a, a massive genocide. So it's a, kind of, it's a terrain that I'm interested in anyway. And, um, uh, and it's, you know, it's so timely. We've got to just keep pushing. And there's a kind of a... The Second World War is a... Is a seems to have this kind of continuing influence on Western culture. Yeah. Partly because, you know, a lot of the things that happened during the Second World War were buried in the Eastern bloc, you know? So after, under communism, a lot of these things weren't dealt with. So, I mean, it's, it's complex, but... Um, well, I think there's always a need to, 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 to remind people of that, too, because some of those lessons do appear to, to be being, being forgot. forgot. All the UN things being right, rolled right back at the moment, and it's yeah. just terrifying. And it's like, these are all the lessons. We learned them the hard way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, people are like, no, it's fine. Like, it was almost like exactly... I remember hearing this just before the crash happened. There was a bill put in place after the, 19, uh, the crash in the 1930s, um, where they put in something to not allow lending to the point where that could ever happen again. And that was taken out like in the 90s and the early 90s. So that's how the crash happened the second time. And now it seems like all the protections that were put in place to say like, no, we're not ever going to have a war like that again. That was too much. Thanks very much. They're just putting them right back out. Yeah, and and it's never truer than, you know, past is prologue. And, you know, if you don't learn from history, then you're condemned to relive it. And certainly something I had in mind from the start with this um, is to do with technology, which is the sort of business that I'm in. And the Second World War was only the second war, arguably in some ways the first, that had been a highly technological war. And Von Braun and Rudolf and all his colleagues always claimed that what they were in love with was the technology they were inventing and its ability to allow humans to explore beyond their earthly bounds. 
date from the 1920s they've been talking about and dreaming of going to the moon and Hitler coming along and making them use their vehicle for going to the moon as a rocket was just a bit of an inconvenience and there's probably a bit of truth in that uh, and certainly the Americans took advantage of uh, you know them wanting to, to continue to build and develop these things to have them close the missile gap because Russia happened to be ahead in the missile race uh, and then of course Kennedy's we will go to the moon in this decade that was all about beating the Reds to the moon you know it wasn't so much about the human race going to the moon or even America going to the moon it was about getting there before the Russians it was all part of the propaganda and what there is in all of that is is lessons about what happens if you develop technology in a moral vacuum it will have consequences without doubt not all of them will be good and that certainly has echoes for the modern day uh, where it's not as sinister as the arms race potentially although potentially actually it is I actually think it's massively sinister I was having a conversation about a dress and that dress came up in my feed later like this is it we're constantly being monitored constantly being watched all of our stuff is being sold off and I think the the Analytica scandal that happened with Facebook has just proved like no, I think it's, it's well, a lot more sinister because people don't see it. That and it's certainly there. from my point of view, as a, as, a, as a cynical, sceptical, I would say, um, journalist. You know, 10 years ago when I first started covering Google and Facebook, or 15 years ago when I first started covering, and these guys would come out of Capitino, California, and say, oh, well, our motto is do no evil. You know, we're just developing this all for the good. I think 15 years later we know that's the BS it always was. And uh, they are just commodifying all of us into a surveillance economy. Yeah. The meat and the sandwich. I mean, that again, like the themes in this are, are amazing. But I'll just go back a little bit to the practical thing. So when did, when did the, how did the conversation start when you brought those fabulous, um, all that research to you? Yeah, well, so I read the play and I said, to Nick, well, what about doing a treatment? And I suppose that treatment um, turned very quickly into a script. It was definitely more than treatment. And we got the structure um, and the flow of the story, which, as Nick was saying, the, the play is the spine. Uh, so we come in and out of the play uh, in the structure of the story. And then we thought, well, we're heading, to, we have a, we're on a timeline here because we want to make the anniversary of the moon landing. So we basically said, let's just start doing the film and um, we knew the key interviews that we needed to get. Nick had already had previous contact with some of the interviewees, Rosenbaum, who I mentioned, Neufeld. And um, we said that we went to the States. And I have a, a way of doing stuff where, which is, as Nick will tell you, is not always, it doesn't always work out, but um, where I shoot a couple of cameras and I run what you're recording on there is yeah. a Zoom, which is, means that I, it's, a, it's a one man crew if you like yeah. and so Nick was able to do the interviews because he was so steeped in the information and I would keep, uh, shoot the cameras and we got rode the trains around the eastern um, the eastern coast of the United States uh, getting our interviews and getting it all in the can and there's some lovely footage there as well like yeah. that sort I was wondering as well when I saw the stock footage credits at the end I was like was odd. Did you? How did you guys get a budget to a big crew all over to America and no, then shoot over here and then do all this? It's a, it's a, so it's that's a, it. Yeah, it's, just, it's well, it's the beauty of digital now. 
But we had a moment with a Zoom recorder where the data, I thought, I couldn't find the data on my drive. That has happened to me before. Oh, oh I nearly had a heart and, attack. Uh, Not I after knew, you just spent two I days knew, in Washington. Oh, I knew, oh, <laughs> and, and Alabama, we traveled hundreds of miles. And I, had the, I knew I had the data, the amount of data I could see in terms of the volume of data, but I couldn't find the folders. And it was that just, and Nick said, you better phone a friend. So, <laughs> and it's, so it's a little bit by the seat of the pants, but it meant uh, both us working that way. It was a lot of fun. We saw, and we got great interviews and, um, and got great stock footage, which then gave us the argument that we were making in our script. And Screen Ireland responded um, with development and then pretty quickly uh, with uh, with production, um, which meant that we could shoot the dramatizations last autumn, and uh, we picked up an international distributor, uh, Red Arrow, and they um, fronted up some, some money for the, and then just bits and pieces that we were both able to get together. And so then, in uh, October last year, we shot the drama in the massive sound studio it's a big fast turnaround did you have everything else edited ready to go and then you're putting in the slide it to an extent it is fast yeah Yeah. so as as Nick was saying there's a huge factory in Sligo six acres of factory in Sligo disused factory it's it's a distillery now but they have a lot of empty space and um, we were able to shoot the dramatizations for the tunnels in Germany that we had filmed in the real tunnels and then Marty Ray who plays the, the prisoner Jean-Michel um, we were able to shoot some scenes with him but also to build the, the courtroom in that kind of black box setting which is not a kind of a faithful as Nick said the actual um, tribunal of Arthur Europe was held in a small tiny conference room uh, in near Pearson Airport and uh, the head of the border agency in, in Pearson Airport in, in Toronto. So we thought, well, let's just think, find a way of doing it that suits the aesthetic of the film. So the black box is kind of wedded to the tunnels, the world of the under, underground tunnels. So it gives that sort of a occluded feel that you get in the tunnels as well. Yes, so. and then he kind of does, like, you feel a bit claustrophobic as well, yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, so you went over and you chatted to um, a bunch of people and filmed stuff in the area. Did any of um, what you guys learned or heard about, did it change any of your plans or anything like that? Or or was there anything that maybe you had to leave out that didn't fit the story? Or I'd say this, I mean, there's some stuff that we left out for sure, yeah. whether you shoot those kind of interviews. Um, and to, I mean, I assume typically of documentary making because it's my first, but we drove down to Auburn in deep south Alabama because there was a particular professor there who'd written a book, uh, German Rocketeers in the Heart of Dixie. So in other words, I think it was a doctoral thesis that been about this specific area because she was a German extraction. I think her uncle maybe or had been one of these scientists at Huntsville. And so she thought it was extraordinary, this, this kind of mix of these German Nazis yeah. coming into this uh, deep south town and setting up orchestras and reading groups and dominating the culture of the town. Um, and so she, she'd written this thesis and this, um, this book about it. And we interviewed her, and she's, she's in the film, but it's a, it's a small extract of, of what she was talking about. And you do get that thing of, God, which is driven 400 miles spent all this time in the beating sun and are we really going to get even two minutes out of this 
And then we're sitting in her office chatting further. And of course, she begins to say, well, actually, maybe I've got this CD of this and I've got this videotape. And so, for instance, she had a VHS video cassette on her shelf of a kind of version of Panorama they used to make in a joint venture with WGBH in Boston, which was shown on American television. And we'd not been able to find a copy of this, and nor had the producers. She'd never seen it because she'd never had a VHS machine. So we said, can we, can we borrow that? Yeah, fine. That's very trusting is, of her as well. well <laughs> I mean, we said, we, well, yeah. A, we'll send it back, and B, yeah. I'll send you an MP4 so you oh, can see, okay. which yeah. is exactly what we did. Um, and this is where about half of the actuality of Rudolph being interviewed in the film comes from. But then she also started producing these um, DVDs that she would play, and one of them was the John Rice and Jones, who'd been speaking just to a local historical society. Oh, are you interested in that? <laughs> yeah, hands <laughs> it over. So you know that's that's the sort of material that you can. And in many ways, that piece of John Rice and Jones is, is is the point where the whole thing crystallizes for the audience. He's a U.S. Army infantryman who was part of the division that liberated the factories and the camps where that was uh, very the prisoners were. Or listen to read. It was very but, hard to listen. But that to is, that, that, yeah. you know, in answer to your question, that is the great documentary moment. If we hadn't gone out there, and there is a lot of Monique in the in the film as, as well, but it's it's this that uh, this man recorded it. It was never really for the purposes of a film or. A, documentary but it was just so that his testimony would be there and in some ways it kind of brings that juxtaposition of you on one hand you've got America covering up the records of these Nazis in Operation Paperclip and then you've got this the, the American army liberating uh, the camps and, and uncovering the truth as well it's a, and it, it, it symbolizes in some ways some of the contradiction of America in many ways so. And did you, like, how was the editing process then if you were going to say, you know, like a bit got left out? Did it, did any of, say, even the narrative structure play? Because I know if you're getting loads of things, it can be tight for time, especially if you have loads of um, information to get across. No, no, the, no, unless it all stayed then. We have the two, we don't have a narrator as, as such. We have the unreliable n- narration of Arthur Rudolph, and we have the narration, the testimony of uh, the prisoner, Jean-Michel. And that, that is a, you know, a technique that, that held for us. And um, it's really just pairing back. And just so, well, how much information can the audience actually take in? And do we need to pair back less being more? And um, Nick is, comes from an editorial background, from a publishing background, so is various Jews in terms of looking at the interviews and, and breaking those down. And then. The editor who I work with uh, regularly, uh, Patrick O'Rourke, based up where I am in Leitrim. Um, Patrick, we've done about 10 films together and uh, he also had a really good feel for it. He's interested in the Second World War. His father had, had fought uh, at the Battle of Arnhem and in, in the desert. and So he had a real feel for the subject and really also worked to get a lot of the archive, much of which is available online. And then, um, and I'd just be in there every day with them and in and out, and because um, I was producing as well, the financing side of it actually took a lot more work than the creative side. In, in truth, you know, incredibly involving. It's not always so. <laughs> but it's just producing a film now is, is 
is so involved in terms of the paperwork and um, but obviously it's a very thankless job producing as well but it, like it, there's so much work that has to go into it and yeah. you might it might never pay off as well and you might be chasing you know like a little bit of money just a little bit of finishing money and then it's like no well from my attitude as a director and a lot of filmmakers maybe listening to this is you know you're often waiting for producers to get your film financed and it's the only thing that's given me some kind of continuity of production is being, being a producer as well. So that's you know true. you just yeah. have to have to do it. You know? I suppose that's it. It got made, it got made at like probably the perfect time yeah. Yeah. for for it to be received yeah. in this context as well. And it's it, such powerful work. How has it been received? You guys sat down and watched it, but you're saying now this is the fourth Q&A you've done. Yeah, we've been on tour uh, just this week. I mean, it opened in Sligo on Thursday, uh, from yeah. Friday, Friday, and Carrick and Shannon and Galway last night now here, and it opens in uh, England or UK uh, this Friday coming, and we've got it in 20 to 30 screens at the moment, and there's more being, being added all the time. Um, so I, I mean, it's been received very well um, by audiences, certainly. And we've, you know, I thought perhaps the Q and A's would be sort of, well, here's a suggestion for a question. Uh, actually, we've had to break it up in order the next film can be shown each each time. That the, there's been no shortage of questions and discussion uh, after the film. So it's achieving something in terms of. Uh, you know, really engaging people's interests. Yeah, and it's a really nice way to. I'm not mad about festivals as a way of um, making getting your film out there. I really like kind of this model of going on the road with your film to. I call them kind of town hall screenings, if you like. You know, they're not. They're in proper cinemas, but it's almost like the kind of the discussion afterwards can be as interesting. And ironically, at festivals, you don't really get that much time to chat. You know. Because the next film is coming on, our people are going off to the next film, and uh, yeah, we, I mean, we had a good Q and A at TIFF, but I think in general it's not set up that way. I mean, so, so it's a bit like being in a band, you know, You're going on the road with the band, and more like, more like a second-rate comic, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> double X, Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. Probably as a filmmaker, you birth your film, you do a few Q and As, the odd one, and then it's just gone. And then yeah. you know it's off without you, and you really kind of get that feedback. But it must be nice as well, just seeing people's faces as they react yeah. to certain moments. Um, and, and we're also getting closer to the actual anniversary of the moon landing. It's like we're three weeks away from it, and we know that the film is going to be screening somewhere through that whole period. You know, so inevitably, you know, there'll be more stuff in the media about the, the, the whole anniversary. And of course, there's a you know, the juxtaposition with Apollo 11, which I haven't seen yet um, because it's only been out this last couple of days, but I certainly will see it, and I'm sure it's absolutely fantastic piece of work. Um, but of course, it is all about the Americans getting to the moon and what an heroic act that was, and, and it was. I mean, it, you know, it was arguably humankind's greatest achievement, but that doesn't mean there wasn't a dark side to it. And, you know, our story is, you know, the dark side of the moon landing. Um, and certainly the other side to any kind of gee whiz everybody's a hero look at those rockets and that's it it's the kind of simplification of narratives and the flattening of those stories that really um, makes it easy to forget and creates this kind of 
nationalism and are we proud of our achievements and like let's make America great again like back then when we managed to do all these things and you're like actually it was an incredibly nuanced thing and probably the only reason they had so much traction was because they like you know got in bed with their old enemies so absolutely yeah and they were and um, they were covering up Vietnam was going on at the same time which was like an absolute atrocity the whole thing you know but um <laughs> That in, in defense of NASA they and the way they went, I mean, Nick will know more about this in eyes and open to correction, was the whole space station project, you know, has been a peace project largely and has informed, say, our knowledge of um, the Earth, the, you know, climate change, like some of the big kind of monitoring of climate change has come from, come from space, you know, and what's been viewed from space. Up. So a lot of it, you know, there is positive aspects to it. And NASA were great to deal with from our point of view, in the sense that we used the footage, we told them what we were using it for, the context absolutely didn't hold back at all. Well, that's and they, really and they, good. Yeah. And they said, go right ahead. You know, if that's, if that's how you're using it, we have no problem. No, I'm, I'm delighted. I hope this. I hope you really enjoy your tour. Thanks so much for coming in to chat with us. Sure. Uh, Thanks, really enjoyed it. And uh, best of luck. Thank you. Uh, oh, and just before we go, where can people see it now? Well, if they look at um, www.prisonersofthemoon.com, prisonersofthemoon.com, they'll see all the events there that, that we have coming up. We're back in Dublin, for example, in the lighthouse. Uh, on the 8th, uh, 19th of July and uh, in Kilkenny, Cork, Belfast loads of places in the northwest and in the west yeah. so. and in a, in a little while when um, the, the touring is over any streaming plans in the future or is that yeah well it's uh, I mean as, as Johnny mentioned it's um, the worldwide TV rights so we've read our own studios international um, which is a big distributor and um, part of Prozeven Sound in Germany. So they're out there now selling it. Um, we know, for instance, they sold it to AMC Networks for Central Eastern Europe, and I'm sure they'll find a home for it for UK, for the States. So it's, yeah. I think it's quite important to us that it gets seen in America. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I'm sure it will. Excellent. Well, we'll keep an eye out on that. It'll be on the website, definitely. And thanks again for chatting to us. Thanks we'll let you go much. back in Thank and you. do your yeah. Q&A. So you. we got out to be sick of talking now. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck.